0: Um, There's a popular view that on its first night at the Opéra Comique in Paris in March 1875, Bizet's Carmen was a complete disaster. And, the view goes on, that it was deep despair at this debacle that hastened the composer's own untimely death three months later. And while it is true, that in the course of rehearsal, both the chorus and the orchestra made Bizet's life pretty difficult, uh, uh, and that he was rising his score in the light of what he was seeing and hearing in this period. Um, And it's also perhaps true that rather prissy Paris turned up its moral nose at the idea of a heroine whose morals were no better than they should have been. It's also true that Carmen ran for a thoroughly respectable 36 performances before the end of the season in which it appeared and it was revived the following year. More than that, Bizet's musical peers Massenet, Offenbach, Delibes, and Gounod were in the audience for the first night and were all full of admiration for what he had achieved. Indeed, during the performance, Gounod himself is supposed to have complained bitterly that Bizet had stolen the music for Michaela's Act Three aria for him, declaring that melody is mine. Well, very quickly, the opera began to travel to Vienna, Brussels and London, St Petersburg and across the Atlantic. And to date, I have to tell you, there have been over 1,000 performances of Carmen at the Metropolitan Opera House in both its two buildings in New York City. As far as other composers outside France were concerned, there was admiration too from Tchaikovsky, Wagner and Brahms. Brahms is reported to have seen the piece 20 times and have said that he would have, quote, gone to the ends of the earth to embrace Bizet. We, of course, now understand the appeal of this piece. It's somehow almost genetically stitched into all of us. It is, of course, an opera built around a string of utterly beguiling melodies. It has an amazingly taut dramatic reconstruction, and it's a drama about those two central things that preoccupy all of us at the beginning and, indeed, perhaps the end of our lives, desire and death. And from the very beginning, perhaps, Carmen was as much about Spain, as is the production you're going to see tonight, as it was about the gypsy who actually seduces Don Jose. Spain, as imagined originally by the late 19th century, as a place where everything was possible that you couldn't do at home. Where you could fall into the waiting arms of a gypsy and so escape the grim fate of a respectable marriage to Michaela. Where you didn't go to the office, but you hung around outside cigarette factories watching pretty girls where you went off with smugglers into the mountains and spent sun-drenched afternoons in the company of Escamillo and death of the Corrida. Well, we have a quartet of guests tonight to explore Bizet's Carmen. David Dyer, who's English National Opera's Chorus Manager and a former chorister with the company. The soprano, Raisha Adams, who's covering the role of Michaela, and Murray Hipkin, a senior member of the English National Opera Music staff, are going to perform for us. And Professor Richard Langham-Smith, now Research Professor in Music at the Royal College of Music, is with us. Richard is co-editor of the Overture Guide to Carmen, and he's produced a new edition of this masterpiece that was performed and filmed at the Opera Comique in Paris. Will you please then first welcome Richard Langham-Smith. Richard, why do you think that Carmen is, I noticed uh, when I was thinking about what we might talk about today, one of the top five most popular operas in the repertoire?
1: Good Tunes. That's the first, I think, and music which grips you. Second is it's got all kinds of themes in it which producers can exploit. And thirdly, it's a realistic story, more realistic than any opera really before, that people can identify with. Does that mean we should see it in the
0: context of that whole movement in late 19th century France, which we sometimes call naturalism, a desire to stage life as it was lived?
1: No, because opera ain't like that, (laughs) as you will see tonight. Uh, There's not very much Seville, there's not even very much Spain. But that doesn't matter, because for me, an opera has two basic elements. It has themes, not in the sense of musical themes, but underlying themes such as social climbing, which is common. She goes through gypsies, moves on to a soldier, and the ultimate is the David Beckham scenario, a bullfighter. (laughs) <laughs> and then there are themes of, of, of jealousy and death. There are themes of a, um, a man who is tied to his own anger and can't really escape for anything ex- without murdering because, after all, Don Jose has murdered before. And I think what comes out in tonight's opera is a theme which is certainly buried within the text, which is this machismo surrounding in which everything takes place. So the opera is made sexier, not because Carmen wiggles her bum more, but because it all takes place within this male environment which somehow, uh, with, with the fighting of the Navajas between Escamillo, with, with the scene where Michela first comes in and the soldiers surround her and invite her in, really rather threateningly, and uh, also the scene in the mountains where Don Jose really becomes not machismo enough uh, uh, to be with the smugglers and that sort of theme is brought out. Now you don't need the image the image which was the original thing happening in Spain in 1820 which is very rarely done, it's always modernised a bit either to Spain around the time around the fin de siècle, around the time Bizet composed it, 1870s or it's set in, in the, the Spain of Franco. So those are the images which project the theme, uh, which project the, the, the theme exactly And and so I don't think it matters to take it away from Spain. But if you do put it there you will find all kinds of links in Bizet's music in the libretto, in the stereotypes which are exploited which can uh, lead you straight to Seville as it leads me to Seville which I'm totally in love with and spend every December overwintering there because it's a wonderful place to be and I stay very near where Carmen seduced her lovers. On the other side is the barracks and up the road is the cigarette factory which you can walk round it's now the university and, but it still has the old labels one says faculty of equine studies or media studies and underneath it says snuff room <laughs> or <laughs> packing room and you just walk in for free and it's it just wonderful
0: if you are looking at the screen here you will see the images from the production that we shall see this evening um, Richard is there a definitive edition of this book I mentioned earlier
1: <laughs> that's the one Edited by me. (laughs) No. There isn't. uh, You can't. When when you work on an edition, you have uh, a different type of remit in mind. Maybe you want an edition which has got all of the sketches uh, that Bizet made of the different versions because, actually, Carmen's entry was not originally a habanera. It was an absolutely beautiful, properly composed aria which you can listen to on the Michel Plasson recording. It's great, but it's not really gypsy-like. You find that the opera changed all the time uh, do you want to put those into an edition very difficult for a conductor because it would be this thick it's been done and you have to have a load of paper clips if you'll find a way through you know mm. so that's my edition was based on it's called a performance or text, and it's based on what the show as it first run for those performances that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And it has stage directions from that, but you can work straight through it, and you don't have any one or two, but mostly not alternative versions. There's this
0: sort of view that Bizet, driven by the, the choristers at the Opera Comique and also by the orchestra, was constantly compromising what he really wanted to do. Is that fair or what do we really have? good practical man of the theatre adjusting to make the best of the resources he has
1: well that's that is true but on the other hand he got his way with the chorus he didn't compromise Uh, there's some very difficult chromatic writing uh, in the chorus, but he he made them get extra singers in but that's not the first time that that's happened in France I mean French singers I, I was involved in a Debussy performance where the French singers from the chorus of the opera house were so bad they had to phone up England and get some choristers from, uh, from the uh, Oxbridge cathedrals who were sight readers to come in
0: And when you were preparing your audition were there surprises, discoveries that, that, that really caught you on the hop as someone who's known this work and thought about it carefully most of your professional life?
1: Oh, wonderful! I mean, to be with the what I—I I think the thing that excited me most were the orchestral parts because if you look at what the orchestral parts are like, you really know what was going on. So you see, see things moved. Uh, you also see the characters of, of French instrumentalists in the orchestra, the brass parts, for example, because brass players, the horns, have huge rests. They don't play for a couple of movements. So they would do three things. First of all, crosswords with rude words. Secondly, they would uh, do little pictures of the conductor and of the first violinist, like caricatures. And thirdly, they would list exactly how much money they were getting for each performance and each date. Very useful, because it made me realise what each date was. That's them. The violins, very careful. They put, you know, put all the Boeings in, absolutely everything. Viola parts, not a single mark on them. Absolutely bare. It's the stereotype That's the first thing The second thing is the way that it was pulled around Because Bizet's actual score The one that he wrote out in manuscript Was used for performances At the Opera Comique and elsewhere For a long time conductor tears it off. The first 42 pages were so badly destroyed, they had to be recopied. And then they inserted a ballet, because you had to have a ballet in certain opera houses. And the ballet came from Ladley's Yen and another piece, The Jolly Maid of Perth or something, and that ballet was inserted. had absolutely nothing to do with the story. So you see this work changing as fashion changes and as the demands of different opera houses change.
0: The Opera Comique has a tradition of spoken dialogue and musical numbers uh, but Carmen exists with, as it were, the spoken numbers, the recitatives uh, uh, with orchestral accompaniment What, What in your view is the right decision about which version of that to go for?
1: Well there's two choices. If you take the one with the opera comique dialogue, one it's very long and there is no recording that I know that has anything like the full length so that is a a difficulty and these days opera houses have international casts and they're likely uh, in one international cast of 12 people there are likely to be two who speak intelligible French. So that is a problem. The second thing is if you use the recitives which were not composed by Bizet, there is absolutely no doubt that Bizet would have composed them had he lived. Uh, Because that's, Bizet wanted to make Dosh out of carmen which you know his wife when she survived made an enormous amount and uh, um, because of that he would have made it so that it goes on opera stages abroad because again a foreign cast couldn't do the french so the restatives make it all nice and smooth for an operatic production Opera comique, by the way, is something that that confuses people because the word comique can, but in this case, doesn't have anything to do with comedy. It's a bit like the comedies of Shakespeare; they're not awfully funny, and there's not any real bits in Carmen that are funny. Uh, it, it comes from the word comédien, which means acting. So it is a blend of acting and speech, opera, comique in that sense. So that is actually what I did find, is this extra scene, which is not performed tonight, but which is on that recording, of um, a very funny scene where an Englishman, who will be wearing typical English costume of trousers too short and, and an umbrella in his hand and a funny little bowler hat, he comes to visit the factory and uh, a, a crunchy young Spaniard is actually courting his wife and distracts the old man. He looks up there and gives a billet do And uh, uh, there is a, a commentator at the front of the stage, one of the soldiers, who's t- T- tells the audience, look what's going on, ha, 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 see what's happening, the old man's being duped. Now that is the real moment, the only real moment of comedy that could be in the opera, and if you have comedy there, when the knife goes in, it goes in even deeper.
0: Uh, a last question, apart obviously from the, the Habanera, um, does Bizet deliberately set out to compose Spain? Into his score.
1: Yes, absolutely. It comes in the overture, da 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 da. There's little hints of the kind of intervals that you get in flamenco music. And then you've got the you've got the polo at the end which introduces the the last yes, the last act, which is the interlude, which is taken actually from a real polo by Manuel Garcia and made into the most wonderful Totally Spanish. And then there's also the seguidilla. Now, the seguidilla called a seguidilla is not a seguidilla at all. It's a waltz or a tirana. And in any case, why should she be singing a seguidilla and say, we're going to go and dance it? The real seguidilla is the chanson bohème, uh, which which happens at the beginning of Act 2, where originally 1911 production, which is recorded, has the absolute essential of the the seguidilla and of the bolero, which are really the same thing, which is castanets and they click all the way through the way that it was done in 1911. I have a suspicion that was done in the original too, and I think it's a great, a great thing to do.
0: Richard Langley, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> And 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 stay with us, please. Um, Our next guests are with soprano Raisha Adams, who's covering the role of Michaela in this production, and Murray Hipkin, a senior member of the English National Opera Music Stop. And they're going to perform. Would you please welcome our next two guests? (laughs) Those of you who've been to these events before will know that, alas, singers have to speak for their supper before they're allowed to sing here. Tell me, who do you think Michaela is? How do you see her?
2: Um, It's a tricky one, because the more productions you do, the more influence you get, and you start to take on other people's opinions as well. Um, I don't think she's quite as goody-two-shoes as people would like to think she is. Um, She comes on, she sings a little bit, she leaves, she comes on a bit more, and people still love her at the end. She can be as vile as you like, but she gets a beautiful Aria and people love it. but I think intrinsically, she's a woman who knows what she wants. She wants Don Jose and she's out to get him and she'll do anything she can. She's very manipulative. She Either she or she, under pressure, gets the mother to write the letter um, and she takes it and, yeah, she tries to twist his arm as best she can. So I don't think she's quite as nice as we all think she is.
0: But she doesn't get what she wants she doesn't. any more than Carmen gets what she wants. Unless you no. presume Carmen wants it. And I wonder whether we should see them as kind of are images of women who are trapped in this world.
2: I think they're very similar, actually, in the things that they're after, and they do go for what they want, just in uh, different ways. You know, Carmen says how she feels all the way through. She's very open, um, and she lets you know what's going on. Uh, Michaela, not so much. She's um, she just she wants him, and and that that is all she wants. That's her main goal in this. You know, to to create a life with this man. And so yeah, you know, I think I think she's trapped in her own desires for him
0: I, I sometimes do wonder in productions and um, whether she really loves don her say or whether what she really wants and um, is she think to ought she ought to love him because he's going to bring her the kind of respectability that she really thinks is what she'd like
2: yes i think actually at the beginning i think at some point in her life she did love him but then she sees in him the desire to create the family and to create the perfect life and so love tends to go out the window by the end. Um, In this production in particular, her final exit, I won't spoil it for anyone, but her final exit shows actually that it's not the true desire for him, um, for the love of him, it's just for what he can bring.
0: And as Richard has reminded us, she gets a pretty rough ride in Act One when she arrives in the square in Seville. Mm-hmm.
2: I think however you look at Michaela, she's still quite naive. She still hasn't been out of the, you know, the little country village setting. And so suddenly she's surrounded by all these men who want one thing. Um, and <laughs> she's not quite sure how to deal with it. She tries to be brave. She stays a little while until eventually she just says, no, no, I'm off. Thank you very much, I can't. No, she doesn't quite know how to deal with all these men. And they are. Know aggressive, yeah.
0: As they say, moving swiftly on. Yeah. Um, what What are the challenges for the singer who takes the role?
2: Um, for me, it is the fact that you are so intermittent in this piece that you need to. It's keeping the level of energy up. You have the whole of Act Two to sit and wait, and then the interval, and then you come on and you're expected to sing this. What is a glorious aria, but. Gosh, I find it tricky. It um, sits in a difficult place. It's, uh, you know, it's vocally quite a challenge to sing. And you've got to be ready through, you know, you sit and listen to Carmen and Don Jose and all the lovely music and then suddenly you're on. And it's just you. There's no-one else on stage by Act Three. It's just you and this aria. And everybody wants to hear it.
0: And this is what you're going to sing for us?
2: It is indeed.
0: Right, onto the tightrope. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Mr Adams, Murray Hipkin, thank you both very much indeed. Murray, listening to that aria, and that extraordinary melody for Michaela, you do wonder whether, in a way, it is Bizet's gift for melody that makes this piece uh, the one that you keep on wanting to
3: return to. I think think it is, and and Richard's already talked about that a little bit. Um, I guess we're all hardwired to remember a tune. the Germans have a word for it, which translates as earworm. And I think this is one of these pieces that gives you earworms. And I, I'm coming to it for probably the sixth time in my career, so maybe even the seventh, I can't remember. And every time I see Carmen, I think, oh, again. And then we get started, and I think, yeah, again, it's great. Okay. Um, and there's just something about the way he chooses the notes and puts them in a particular order. It's really that's all I can say. I just want to give you a couple of little examples. Um, this little melody here, you'll all recognise it, I know. Now, some people say that's Carmen, some people call it the fake motif. Whatever you call it, it's everywhere. It comes, comes like that. Even the habanera, the, um, Carmen's first first entrance. Not far off, is it? So, it, I mean, he doesn't use motifs in the way that a composer like Wagner does, but at the same time, he kind of takes us somewhere when we hear those things coming back and we know what we're meant to be kind of getting out of out of something Um, but it's just one after another isn't it one after another Um, how many people know this tune can i just see who's who's never seen the opera all the way through on stage how many people never okay so most of you have but um just have a listen to this because i bet you'll know it even if you've never seen carmen So you all knew that, didn't you? Because it's just around us all the time. That's actually, my, I think, my favourite at the moment. My favourite varies from day to day. That's my favourite at the moment. I'm just struck by the number of you who haven't seen how lucky you are. Uh, oh, the, yes. the wonder
0: imagination of <laughs> me coming to Carmen for the first time. One or, one or um, two people seemed a bit unhappy to admit it, but please don't be scared. No, <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> but Murray, I mean, if, it, if, it's, if it's an astonishing gift for melody, and it's also the dramatic gift for the use of melody too, mm. isn't it? I mean, if you just take the first of the little themes you played, mm. whether it's or whether it's fate or, you know, it's it, it somehow insidiously insidious eats its way into, and it will finally arrive at the end of this piece in a devastating
3: form. It's his capacity for drama as well yes, as... I didn't like, play the last version, did I? Shall I just do that yeah. quickly? Which is about far away from... Whatever it is, I've lost the notes now, There go. That one. Um, yeah. And, and that journey from the beginning to the end is indeed the drama of the piece itself absolutely I think it's, it's uh, we, um, Rich has talked a bit about Michaela's journey Jose's journey is a very very interesting one because um, his music at the beginning is very much linked with um, Michaela and the kind of there's a, there's a country feel about it you feel like you're sort of on top of a mountain somewhere um, and he sort of seems to go from sort of honest country boy through this journey of lover and then he's a deserter, and then he's deserted and abandoned and becomes very jealous, has a breakdown and at the, at the very end, of course, there's that fatalism that, that you, and you, we know and he knows there's only really one way that this can end and it ain't going to be pretty. Is there a danger if you're working on this piece?
0: I mean, what you've just said, I think, is very revealing, that you think Carmen again and then your heart lifts. I think that's yeah. true for us coming to see it too. But is there a danger sometimes that we just think about it as a kind of string of extraordinarily elegantly constructed numbers, um, you know, if you see it with the speech uh, uh, rather than the rest mm-hmm. linked together? In other words, we don't
3: always pay it the proper due attention and productions don't always give it the weight and value it needs. Well, I think that is a danger. And it, it may be that some of you are here today because you love the tunes in Carmen. Um, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But what I think is going to be the, the excitement tonight is seeing all those tunes in context and learning that, for example, that Seguidea isn't just a pretty little Spanish-sounding song, but it's actually really in, integral part of, of the plot, the story, between um, uh, José in our production, rather than José, sorry, <laughs> José and uh, Carmen herself. Um, Yeah, I I mean, it really is about putting them all in context, I think. Um, Yeah.
0: Murray, thank you very much indeed.
3: Um, Our last
0: guest is David Dyer, who is English National Opera's Chorus Manager and indeed a former chorister with the company. Will you please welcome David Dyer? David, let's start with Carmen. I mean, how great a challenge for the chorus
4: is common well it's a challenge in several ways as christopher says there's some really delicate music in in common especially act three act three with the smugglers is incredibly detailed in how the staccatos are written um, and how the chorus and the legato lines it's it's really hard stuff and the, the first entrance to the ladies is a beautiful melody that has got to be delicately sung. Um, so it's not just the big robustious. Um, big numbers. There's a huge amount of range for the chorus to do. And of course Murray also said it's probably the the opera that any chorister has done more often in their career. Um, I was here for 22 years and I did four productions of Carmen here in this house, which meant four different translations. Um, And it's it's an amazing opera to come back to but you've got to try and keep it fresh. That helps with a different conductor each time, helps with a new production. Um, but it's, it's, it's that range from the very... Even the first opening for The Gentleman is, is very contained, and then, of course, it all bursts into this violence. And there's an awful lot,
0: quite apart from the uh, difficulty of For them to do. I mean, this is an opera where the chorus are absolutely
4: central. Absolutely, they are that community that that Carmen comes out comes out of um, in this production. This great machismo. men which she rebels against or controls. Um, the, the ladies who are equally strong and equally dismissive to the men as, as she is. And then, of course, this huge act in, in, in When They Become Smugglers. Um, Calixto Bieta, who directed this production, based that scene on something he actually saw. He actually saw people smuggle the sort of goods you'll see tonight um, and the cars and so on, and he literally just recreated it, and it's it's real life. Richard, taking a step back,
0: what does the, David? What does the chorus manager do? <laughs> in the,
4: um, the chorus manager. I think my job is to make the chorus's life run smoothly. Um, we have a chorus here, permanent chorus of forty-four. Um, in Carmen, we have fifty-six, and a, chor- a children's chorus of twenty. Um, so we hire extra choruses if the production needs it. In Meister Singer, of course, we had a chorus of 90. Um, And in Queen of Spades, we've got a chorus of 68. And in Force of Destiny next season, we'll have a chorus of 80. So part of my job is to to find and arrange the singers. Um, It's to make sure that the chorus know where they're going on on a given day, that the correct number of music stands will be there, that the correct number of seats will be there. to process their pay to make that hopefully to be able that they can do their best on the stage. We ask an awful lot of this chorus. Um, This morning they were doing Queen of Spades, um, tonight they're doing Carmen Tomorrow morning they're doing Queen of Spades Tomorrow night they're doing Pirates Benzance um, Next week they start rehearsals for Lady M of M- For next season It's a really tough schedule um, But it shows off the the range that we ask a singer to do And also their own versatility Which is what makes I think Eno very special
0: And presumably you're also a shoulder to weep on.
4: Yes um, that, 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 that comes from being part of the theatrical community I think, I hope that having come from well, having turned from poacher to gamekeeper um, and come from the chorus I think hopefully they know that they can come to me and, and, and talk about it's amazing what people will talk about because it's such an emotional thing to go out and lay yourself bare on a stage, even as a chorister that you've got to have that sort of personality that things will just erupt out of you
0: and I, I sometimes wonder how you recruit the kind of core members of the course. Did they come to you, or does the company set out to look for people it, it wants?
4: When, when there's a, a vacancy arises, that we will we will advertise, and we will then audition adi- usually in two rounds. Um, the second round we will we'll make them dance and sing and see everything, not just sing. Um, we will ask them to sing in English. Um, at the first edition to see that that, that works um, the jobs sadly come up rarely um, but we have a one of our basses will be retiring at the end of the season and we'll recruit from, from then um, I have to say it's a, it's a tough life out there for young singers I must get unsolicited um, CVs in the range of 5 to 10 a day um, and we will get we will get when the, when the bass job Comes up, we will get at least 200 applications, which will fill it down to maybe here 20 or 30.
0: Do you hear up to 30 voices? Well, it
4: depends. Well, it depends on the, on the on the quality of the CV and who we want to hear. But um, yes, and uh, we will ask them to come in and maybe give them five minutes. in the first edition. First edition, you've got five minutes to show um, that we'll call you back for another one. It's a very hard life. And and when they come,
0: do they come as young singers because this is a stepping stone in a career that may lead them eventually to a solo career, or do they come because they want to be a chorister?
4: There are are lots of different ways to to come in addition. There are certainly singers who want to come and and learn the craft. Um, There are are others who, who... And it's never... You're not a failure if you're a chorister. Um, you're not a failed soloist. Uh, I get really annoyed at music colleges who, who tend to push singers saying that the only thing to be is, is a, a soloist. No, it's not. I spent 30 years um, being a chorister both at Glyndebourne and here. Um, and another company is never out of work. It's a great job. It's a, you are the linchpin. The orchestra and the chorus are the heartbeat of a company. Um, and what makes the company special, what makes this ensemble special. Um, I think what makes our chorus special is because the range, to go from Mike Lee's Pirates, to Calix, to David Alden, to, to Deborah Warner, to the people we get to work with, and the variety of styles we demand of them within a season, it's... And this amazing company—it's its reach in English and the singing in English, and that natural communication we feel with you, the audience. Um, who'd want to leave? Is it important
0: in a chorus to have a range? Of ages for the voices, I mean, we think of the Leborn chorus, perhaps, if we're fortunate enough to see them either yep. on tour or in the house itself, as being essentially a young chorus, people starting their careers, and one of its joys is that but what 's great about the chorus here is they quite clearly are a kind of you know all the way from from, from a certain maturity to their youth well
4: that 's exactly right as as a society and I mean and the chorus should re- reflect the society on stage. We have a young tenor who 's been with us two years, and he's now 24, so he's the baby. Um, But we also have a gentleman who first sang um, in the famous Sadler's Wells production of um, Meister Singers um, when it came here. So he's been singing with the company since 1969. Um, So we have that amazing range of ability and continuity um, I always say the great thing when I joined, and one of the reasons to digress from Carmen to Peter Grimes, that we feel that Peter Grimes is our um, piece Mm. because we can as a chorus trace choristers back to the original production. When I came here there was a chorister who had been in the first revival Mm. and we feel that lineage Mm. through the company. What are
0: the essential skills that the chorister needs? to be able to sing, but apart from that what would you say were the other key skills?
4: Well in this, com- in this company it's, it's the ability to, to work in m- a wide range of styles. What Richard Jones will ask from a chorister is very different to what Jonathan Miller will ask from a chorister. You've got to be open to all and able to adapt to all these styles and um, throw yourself into a calixto Beat of production, for instance, like and, tonight. And what does a chorister want
0: from a director, be it uh, calixto be it Jonathan Miller, be it uh, an Alden? What does he want from
4: them? They want to not be so tied in that they can't express themselves, but they want a clear vision and they want to know what is expected of them and their role within the piece. So they want a character? Oh, yes, oh, yes. You'd look around our chorister. Their, their characters are, are plenty
0: and, and how, in your experience, when you were a it, how do you set about finding that character?
4: It depends, and it depends. I mean, it could be the costume, it can be the production, it could be something the director says. I, I remember when we did Jonathan Miller's Rosen Cavalier, I, I had the, the misfortune of fortune to sing The First Footman, which is one of those terrifying roles. He, he's got very little to sing. He runs on and he goes, The count is off and away. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Gather on the corner like the wind. Two, three, four. Gather from the corner like the wind, all in vain. Out. <laughs> and it's. It's the most <laughs> nerve-wracking thing, and if you get it wrong, the whole piece crumbles. Mm-hmm. I have sat through performances with esteemed colleagues on, watching it on video and it's gone wrong. You think, oh, my poor poor, poor poor, man, I know exactly what you're doing. But with that production and with Jonathan, Jonathan sidled up, it was set, we were very kind of 1910. And he had this wonderful way of sidling up to you in a rehearsal. Well, everyone else is rehearsing. And he he, he sidled up like this and he started to do basically his Beyond the Fringe Act to you about how he and Peter Cook and Alan Bennett and Dudley Moore had gone to the palace and how the footman at the palace behaved. And that, of course, gave you it straight away.
0: And is there also a capacity to read, grasp and remember music Quickly, that's essential for a chorus. Oh,
4: it's absolutely essential because very often we will we will do things, especially something like our revival of Mikado is coming back in the autumn. In the autumn, and we'll, they will have two musicals, but they do know it. They do then. Then, and part of the problem, as I said before, is sometimes when we have a new translation, that can the old translation can keep cropping in your mind, but you have to. Clear that out.
0: Apart from the footman, who announces the arrival of Rufrano um, in Cover, what do you think is the hardest thing you've ever had to do as a chorister? Um,
4: oof. we had Life of an Idiot, Schnittke was a was a, was an amazing piece, um, uh, the hardest thing, I don't know, there's always a challenge. Um, Lowingrin for a tenor is chorus tenor is hard work. Um, That's really hard work. And there was one evening because of mad flu. I think we had seven tenors off, and that was that was hard work.
0: Now beyond the kind of close. regular chorus. Mm. Um, you've talked about the numbers, 90 for Meister yep. Singer, 80 for um, uh, next season for Force of for Destiny. Um, where do you look for them? Where do they come from?
4: They come from our um, extra chorus list. Again, we, we hear everyone. Everyone who who sings on a stage has been heard by the chorus master or the head of music, and to go on the list. And um, Occasionally we'll hear lots of singers and, and put them on list and so on. And They're freelance singers. We If they get to like us and we like them And they come back And we're great to see them And a lot of them just love being here And it's great to have them
0: David, thank you very much James, we have a little time in hand If you would like to ask questions of any of our guests Either about the chorus or indeed about Carmen Or anything, please put your hand up The roving microphone will find you And I will wave my finger at you Who would like perhaps to ask a question? This is called the English moment at the Colosseum when everybody looks at their feet and hopes their neighbour will ask the question. Be brave. Anybody who'd like to ask the question? Yes.
2: Uh, it's incredibly interesting. I've never been to one of these. Uh, thank you very much, everybody. I'm just interested in the role of the children's chorus in this. I mean, it, um, it's, it's not that common, is it, to have children in an opera? I don't know. Oh, I'm not an expert. Perhaps it is.
4: children in opera, La Bohème. Um,
2: I just wondered, wondered, you know, why is, this, is was this done for musical reasons? Was it done for the plot? Uh, you know, just interested. The
1: cigarette factory in Seville was a very famous building because it was the first building that employed only women and it was a social institution in some way. In another way, they were able to pay the women less. But a lot of these women had illegitimate children and as a social gesture they built a primary school onto the end of the building and eventually an elementary school as they grew up now that seems to me the reason why the children are actually hovering around the cigarette factory so it comes from uh, Prosper Merrimay is the person who really we haven't mentioned but we ought to who is the uh, writer of the novel on which Carmen is based which you can all buy in English and read in half an hour and you'll see the differences because Carmen's married to a, a blind man And a cruel, horrible blind man, and Michaela is not in it at all, and nor is Escamillo. But that these realities um, were reported in the matter of uh, travellers who went to Spain, reporting back about what it was like, because there was no other way of seeing it. You couldn't buy a book of pictures or photographs or anything. They were published in magazines, Le Tour du Monde, the Tour of the World, uh, Le Revue des Deux Mondes, of the New World and the Old World, and that gave you some realities. I think that's where that came from. Another question.
0: Let me just ask a supplementary to that question, which is about the children's chorus. Do you have regular um, s- um, schools, regular children's choirs that you, that you work with?
4: Yes, th- we have a various uh, different ways of using. The children tonight come from various different schools who are brought together for this production and learn the music um, with our music staff here. Um, with Queen of Spades, I think the children they have all come from a- Single school, and they've learnt the music at school and then come into the production. It depa- depends on the demands of the production. Um,
0: and they all have to be chaperoned and looked oh, after. Absolutely. So they do pose logistical problems. Ab-
4: d- d- absolutely. Yes. Right. And we're trying to get everyone into the dressing rooms in, in this show and, goodness me, it is a bit of a nightmare. Night- Not night- to mention
0: <laughs> what my singing must be like. Absolutely. We have one last question in the background. The microphone's coming towards you, Madam. Sorry,
4: I've had a deep voice. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the, the lead singers and, and how much time they get to prepare for an individual role and how many times these particular singers have played these roles?
0: I think we should ask Rachel to tell us about principals. Um, t-
2: I've never worked here as a principal on stage. I've only ever worked here as a cover. Um, in other places, I've tended to get Um, about four to six weeks and that's generous um, rehearsal time you tend to get a lot of opportunity for coaching everywhere I've worked previously have contacted me before rehearsals way before rehearsals begin they send you your music and say if you want any coaching just contact us Um, and you come in as a cover we got I got sessions with Murray before rehearsals began um, and then you have about, on this one we had about six days to put it together um, previously I did Xerxes which we had a little bit longer for and for Figaro um, it depends on the company it depends on budget um, and it depends on the role um, you are expected to do a lot of work before you arrive so you'll actually arrive knowing the role um, yeah yeah, it, it can really vary. As I said, I've had anything from a week to six weeks to prepare.
3: Murray. Yes, it's a, it's a very good question. And the answer, of course, it varies depending on who the principal is and where they live, because it's a practical thing as much as anything else. But in this, in this particular um, case, Justina and um, Eleanor, who play Carmen, and Michaela, who who are two emerging uh, Young, while I say, I'll say stars because I I think they both are. um, that Richard Armstrong, the conductor, has taken a very great interest in working with both of them, and I I played for some of his sessions over several months. Um, It's not something we always have the luxury of here now, with you know, particularly employing um, casts from overseas as we do sometimes, um, and having conductors who aren't local. But but in this particular occasion, there's been a lot of of prep, particularly with those two. artists um, on the roles and, and, and I, I don't think they're doing the roles for the first time but certainly first time in English. Um, Eric of course has come from America. I'm not sure whether he's sung the role before but he will have done, he coached locally and then come to us for a few days just to put it all together before the, rehearsal, the production rehearsals began. So it does vary. The, the choristers for example who are involved will have, have time with me because they're on the spot.
4: I think it, this is Eric's, the uh, Don Jose. This is his first um, first time singing Don Jose. In fact, he told me the other day, this is his fifth new role of the season. Un- Gosh. Un- unbelievable. You see, you do learn secrets if you come here. <laughs> <in>. uh,
0: <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, some thank yous. Thank you to all of you for being wonderfully attentive audience, but thank you to our four guests who've given up an afternoon to tell us very interestingly and full of imagination about what we're going to see later. Thank you all very much indeed.